0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Picking up where we left off last week, where we're continuing in our series going through the book of 1 Peter uh, this week, looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18, and then going through verse 25. It should be on the screen behind me if you don't have that. Servants. My wife used to be a personal assistant. She would run errands, pick up dry cleaning, take the kids to school. But she also had some really important job responsibilities, teaching, discipling, overseeing massive, expensive projects. But if you've never been around someone who is a personal assistant, when you are, you'll find out pretty quickly that the way that they enjoy or hate their job, the way that they keep doing it or quit pretty fast, is less tied to how kind or rude their boss is it's more tied to how they view their work. Our life, whenever we live it, it's rarely like The Devil Wears Prada, even if it might feel that way. The expectations may be high, but you're not usually tasked with getting the unpublished Harry Potter manuscript. And because of the nature of the work, you're oftentimes doing tasks that they literally could do themselves, but they have you. So now they get to go do something else while you do whatever task it is that they just gave you. It can be frustrating. It can feel like you're a lesser person, of lesser value than them, because one of them is wearing the dry, clean dress, and the other one has to go pick it up. But when you let all of that stuff go, and you just accept that your job is to serve another person, and in so doing, as you serve them, to perform a greater service to some higher reason, some higher cause, than just simply serving them, then it just stops bothering you that, yeah, they could get their own coffee, but they asked you to do it. You're able to serve well in your situation, even when they might even blur the lines between kind and unreasonable. Today's verses deal with some heavy subjects of greater weight than merely being a personal assistant. But I think if we can think through all this well, we'll be able to learn how to serve God even when we're serving an unjust master, even when we're serving an unjust boss. That perspective will help us see how we should respond to unjust situations as Christians more generally. So today in our text, we're go- we'll be able to see four responses to unjust situations. We'll see four responses Christians should have to unjust situations in today's passage. And the first Christian response to unjust situations in today's text is that we should serve even the unjust master. The Christian serves even when his master is unjust. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Okay, right from the beginning this morning, we have to clarify something about the context of our text, of our verses. That first word in verse 18 in the ESV that I just read is servants. But if you have a different translation, it might say something different than that. It might say slaves, it might say household slaves. The word that's used there isn't a very common word in Scripture. There are normal words that are often used for servants, and there are normal words that are often used for slaves. This one isn't really either of those. As near as we can tell, it's talking about something that's kind of in between just normal everyday servant, as we would think about it, and slavery. Household slave from the CSB, that's actually pretty good to what we would think for that word. It's someone who we would classify today as a slave, but not in the way that we typically would think about slavery today. So because of our context as Americans, with our history of abhorrent and terrible slavery, we have to make a distinction between what the Bible is talking about here and what we think when we hear servant or slave or household slave. In this world at that time, Slavery wasn't quite the same slavery that we think of. They were often skilled laborers. Sometimes they were more educated than their masters, not less. They were probably paid for their labor. They usually had the option of eventually buying their own freedom from their masters. There were laws, there were regulations about what you could and couldn't do to your slave, how they were supposed to be treated. They were still property, but they weren't just property at this point. But even as we emphasize the difference between slavery as it was practiced then and the slavery that pops into our head, as terrible and abhorrent as that was, and all the consequences from that that we still see and experience in our world, we have to be careful not to overemphasize the differences because their slavery was still slavery. They may have been skilled laborers, but they still had to do exactly what they were told. They may have been paid, but it's not like they got a fair rate. They could technically buy their freedom, but almost no one ever did. There were regulations, but it's not like OSHA was coming by and checking the work conditions all the time. There wasn't anyone checking in to make sure the regulations were always followed. They were still considered property. A human being was still considered property. They were still treated terribly, used, and abused. The regulations, they weren't there so much to ensure that there wasn't a hostile work environment. They were more like, be careful punching your slave in the mouth, because if you break their teeth, you might cut your hand. So we want to draw a distinction between the slavery that we're reading about and that Peter is writing toward and what we think of as slavery, but don't draw too far a distinction. Don't think that you are outside the bounds of something that we would say is unjust and terrible from the get-go as a situation. There are obviously similarities and differences between their slavery and ours. It's not quite what we had going, but it is still slavery. So who Peter is talking to here is kind of that in-between group. Think butlers that can't quit and might get abused. These are semi-permanent employees without legal or economic freedom. But remember that this is still under the largest umbrella in 1 Peter from uh, back several verses ago. Whenever it talks about how Christians should keep their conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And it's still under also the smaller umbrella that we are subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That as terrible as this is, it's casting the Christians as the victims of injustice, and Peter is acknowledging the injustice and telling them how to bear underneath it, how to live their lives as Christians in that unjust system. So when Peter is saying to household slaves these kind of things, the principles still apply to all of us, even if our context is a little different. How you relate to your boss should still be informed by this, even if it's not quite a copy and paste scenario from what Peter was talking about. And what Peter is saying to these servants is to be subject to, to submit to, and to serve your master's. He's not commending the life of slavery. He's not saying it's a good situation. He's just saying that the initial posture, the normal disposition of your life toward your master should be one of service and submission. That we should submit with all respect, he says. Not grumbling or complaining. Not being compelled or with a bad attitude. No, with all due respect, we are subject to them, whoever is over us. We bring a positive attitude and a cheerful disposition to our jobs. We treat them like our master because that's who they are. They're the ones who are over us. When we hear the phrase, with all due respect, I think we've kind of forgotten what that means. I don't think I have ever heard someone actually say out loud the words, with all due respect, and then say anything that was actually respectful in the next sentence. Usually it's, with all due respect just to highlight that there is actually no respect due to them. With all due respect, you can go fill in the blank. But Peter isn't conveying that sense here. He's saying that there is respect that is due to them simply because they are your master. They're part of an earthly institution that Peter has also said we are to submit to. He's saying that you should interact with them under a healthy desire to avoid their displeasure. That's how you're subject to them with all respect. Your goal is to keep them from being unhappy because of what you've done. They might be unhappy for other reasons, but as long as it's not because of what you've done, that's, that's what you're trying to get to. When they think of you, you want them to think of someone who does what you're asked in the way they've asked you to do it. That's your normal disposition, your normal posture. And Peter even goes one step further. He makes a special point that we don't just submit to and serve the good bosses. We don't just submit to and serve the good masters. We are subject with all respect to them, not only to the good ones and the gentle ones, but also to the unjust, also to the ones who treat you poorly, also to the ones who are jerks, the ones who, in the context Peter was talking about, were likely also abusive by our current standards. Peter says that doesn't matter. You be subject to them and you view them with respect. The more I read, the more I study 1 Peter as we're preaching through it right now, the more radical a book I think it really is. Remember, it's written to elect exiles, a group of Christians who are not part of the majority culture. They are outsiders. They're grieved by various trials. They're living counterculturally. They are the ones that people look at and try to cross the street because they don't want to be near those same people. But Peter won't let them become militant in their disposition toward the Gentiles, toward the people who are mistreating them. No, he says, you have to keep your, honorable, your conduct honorable among them. That emperor who is persecuting you, submit to him. Those people who are rejecting you like they rejected Christ, stumbling over you like a rock in their way, you should do good deeds to them so that they'll see those deeds and glorify God because of them. That master who owns you. And not just the the good ones that you'd be willing to work for anyway, but also the unjust ones, the abusive ones. He's telling these people to submit to and serve them with all respect. Okay, these are not normal commands. These are not things we would expect him to be saying. They might not even make sense to us sometimes when we think about them. We might read them and wish that God had told us something different. Maybe he had given us a little more nuance here that we could wiggle or think our way out of obeying them. But the language is just too universal for that. It's so clear, we can't avoid it. He says, honor everyone, full stop. Honor the emperor, full stop. Obey your masters, especially the evil ones. As a Christian, he's telling us to respond to an unjust situation By serving even that unjust master. But it doesn't stop there. We're also to endure even the unjust punishment. That's the second Christian response to unjust situations in today's verses. Endure even the unjust punishment. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter calls this actually a gracious thing when we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's not excusing the conduct of the unjust master that you're supposed to serve. He's acknowledging it. He's not saying, yeah, he's unjust, and that's a good thing. He's saying, yeah, that's unjust, and you're the one that has to deal with it. This is unjust. It's not how it's supposed to be. He's saying, yeah, you're suffering, and that's not right. You're experiencing sorrows, and that's terrible. But there's something Peter is cluing in on, that when we endure those sorrows, when we suffer that injustice, we come out the other side as different people. We come out the other side stronger, more resilient, more trusting in the Lord now after that experience than we were going in. But the point isn't just to endure. The point isn't just to get to the other side, to grit and bear it, as my wife would say. You don't just white-knuckle your way through it by your own force of will. You see, we're not stoics. We don't walk across the coals because we've convinced ourselves that it doesn't hurt we endure these sorrows and sufferings in the text by being mindful of God. That that's actually what makes the endurance commendable. So that when you couldn't do it, when you wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't for the presence of God helping you through it, when your every second is lived informed by and in the trusting knowledge that God is with you in the middle of this suffering, that he is sovereign over the suffering, that there's something for you on the other side of this injustice, even if this injustice leads to your death, that that is when it's commendable. That's when you can see this thing as gracious and good, even when it objectively just isn't. Enduring sorrows, mindful of God, that is a good, gracious, and commendable thing for the Christian. And he says that's especially true when these sufferings are undeserved. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter's speaking in line with how the Bible often speaks that what makes this special is that it's different and oftentimes the opposite of what we would naturally think. He's saying the benefit is greater. the, The testimony is greater. Everything is heightened by the seeming injustice of it. Jesus tells us roughly the same thing in Luke chapter 6, verses 32-35. through 35. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies... And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will see the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Paul makes roughly the same point when he talks about the grace and mercy of Christ in dying for sinners in Romans 5. If you do good to people who do good to you, how is that different from anyone else in our lives? Who would possibly die for His enemies? Who would possibly die for someone who didn't deserve it? If you're able to endure and suffer the punishment that you deserve, well, then what's the big deal? You deserved it, didn't you? What makes this a particularly Christian response is that you're enduring, mindful of God, when there is no earthly reason for you to be experiencing this, when it does not make sense, when you are unjustly sentenced, when it should not be this way, when I played sports in high school, a common feature of our practices were conditioning at the end. You'd go through the whole practice, and then you'd put everybody on one line, blow a whistle, and you just had to run. And you had to go until you hit a fence, and then you'd have to stop, and then they'd do the same thing back the other same direction. At the end of every practice, that's what we did. It was awful. But about every other practice, the whole team would end up having to run extra sprints because the coaches would watch and make sure that everyone was actually running, because if everyone doesn't actually run, it doesn't count as a sprint. A few guys, they had figured out that, you know, if I run at 80%, it looks roughly the same as all these other guys running 100%. So I bet I can run 80% and no no one will notice. So they did. And guess what? Those goobers got caught every time. At the end of every practice, we'd get done with the sprint, And a coach would say, Carnes wasn't running, that one doesn't count. So now I, who was running the whole time as fast as I could, had to now run another sprint, being even more tired than Carnes, who wasn't running, and had to do the same thing again. Okay, that was unjust. Should not have happened. It was unfair, and I didn't deserve it. And I'm not bitter about it at all. We had to endure the suffering of another sprint, even though I had done the good of running at 100% every time. And I don't want to say that's like a one-to-one between what I endured in high school football and what Peter was writing to in this text. But at the time, it felt like a major injustice to me. But if I were enduring, mindful of God, even when it's unjust, that would have been a gracious thing. That would have been a commendable thing. That's how I could have been following in the way of Christ in that moment. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter says that a life of enduring suffering that you don't deserve, that's actually just what it looks like to be a Christian. He's saying, that's what you've been called to, Christians, elect exiles. That's baked in. It's part of the deal. More than that even, it's what it looks like to be a Christian. You don't get the calling to Christ without also the suffering that Christ experienced. Christianity, that which we proclaim and profess in this church, is a life of following Jesus. It's a life of being like Christ in light of his gospel. It begins with what he's done for you in the gospel. That's actually how you continue in this life. But what it looks like is living your life the way that Jesus lived his. Responding the way that Jesus responded. Having the same thoughts, the same commitments that Jesus had. And there is just no way to do any of that without also enduring suffering as he did. We take up our cross and we follow him. He suffered and died unjustly. So if you're following him, guess what's coming for you? He was humiliated. He was called a criminal. He was sentenced to death. So guess what's coming for you? He didn't live a life in his incarnation that was all about glorifying himself, at least not directly. So guess what life of denial you get to live now as you follow him? This is what you were called to. Christ is your example, so now you follow that example. You act as He acted in similar circumstances. You follow in His steps. And He committed no sin. So now you don't get a free pass to commit one even against your master who may deserve it. Deceit wasn't found in His mouth, so it shouldn't be found in yours. You are to endure even unjust punishment. And I think... Guys, we have to change our perspective on this. We hear the words endure, trials, suffering, unjust. And our first thought is yeesh. It does not sound like something I want a part of. But, and I get that this isn't easy. In fact, it's impossible without the Spirit working in us to make it happen. What we should do is we should see this as one more way that we get to be like Jesus. If we live lives of comfort, lives of wealth and prosperity, without ever knowing the pains of suffering and grief and despair and injustice, then how can we possibly live like Jesus did? Because that's how He lived. There's no way that you know whether you're following Jesus, no no way you know that you are acting like He acted, unless your life looks like His did. And when it does... Now, because you have an example in Christ, you know exactly how you're supposed to respond to it, like he did. You suffer by being mindful of God. You endure without sin, without deceit. That's how you live like Jesus. Even when the punishment is unjust, even when you don't deserve it, what you do now is you respond to that situation by enduring like Christ. And another unjust situation that you have to respond to is really just the appearance of an unjust situation. Our third response this morning is to entrust even when the judge appears unjust. When it looks or feels like we're being judged by an unjust judge, we entrust our lives to him all the same. Look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, we just don't get the retribution that we might want in this life. For a time, in individual circumstances, injustice happens. And sometimes it never seems to get corrected. For Christ, that looked like soldiers and crowds reviling him on his way to the cross. It wasn't enough just to sentence him to flogging and crucifixion. They mocked him and hurled insults at him as they did it. They hit him. They beat him. They spit in his face. But notice how he responded to all this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He endured without sin entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Okay, no one else would have reacted that way but him. Whatever insult they threw at him, he could have given that back tenfold. Like, you know that, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. Do you have any idea the dirt that he had on these guys? You don't look like a king now, do you, Jesus? Look more like a king than you did whenever you wet the bed at 13, Greg? He was all-powerful. These guys with their fists are punching him? Do you have any idea what he could have done to those guys? And yet he didn't. He was silent. He endured without sin, without retribution, without revenge on them. And sometimes we come upon situations that feel unjust just all the way through. There's just nothing about it that's right. The cheater just prospers. He wins. The wicked, they get what we wanted. Innocent men are convicted of crimes, while the guilty go free on a technicality. Okay, sometimes you did everything right. You didn't smoke, you didn't drink, you ate well, you exercised, you ate all the blueberries you could, and then bam. A cancer diagnosis falls on you like a sack of bricks. Life doesn't seem fair, does it? Well, Jesus experienced all these same realities and more. Whatever you might think is unjust for you to suffer, that's infinitely more unjust for him to suffer as the only truly innocent one to ever live. So how did he deal with this reality? How did he react to his life of injustice? Well, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly he continued in his faithfulness to the God who is faithful. He trusted so much that God is who he claims to be, that he was faithful even to a painful death after a life filled with suffering. He was willing to forego immediate retribution and payback because he knew there is a just judge, and that just judge will dole out justice in the end. All the wrongs that will be made right in the end, every sin will be accounted for. Every word will be remembered, and every moment of suffering will be worth it on that day. He was able to get through the present injustice, not just because he was God in the flesh who cannot sin, though that was surely enough. He did it by looking forward to the day when everything was going to be made right. His eyes weren't fixed on the evil in front of him, but rather on the joy that was going to be revealed through him. He gives us the steadfast faith to persevere in suffering, to continue in trusting our lives to him, and thus to be considered worthy of his kingdom whenever we enter it. And this comes from the knowledge and hope that he is going to get his justice, that the evil will be repaid. Those who afflict will be afflicted. And when Christ is revealed on the last day, that's when we will get our relief. So now we have every reason to entrust ourselves to that just judge. Though he might seem unjust now when we experience injustice, we know that that won't always be the case. And since that won't always be the case, we can continue to trust him through whatever we experience because there is a fixed day when our faith and trust will become sight. We can react to our injustices like Christ by entrusting ourselves to the one who is just even when when he doesn't appear that way to us. And the final response that Christians should have to unjust situations this morning is to live even as one unjustly healed. We live as one unjustly healed. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See here, Peter makes a turn from focusing on the injustices committed against us by those around us to us as the ones who are guilty of sin. This whole time, it seems like we've been the victims, and now he reminds us here at the end that we aren't as innocent as we might think we were. This is the basis from which we're able to react this way to injustices against us. Because we have committed those same injustices and we've been forgiven for them. Even further than that, Peter's saying that if Christ doesn't endure without sin through the injustices committed against him, then you get no real healing or forgiveness. Steadfast and sinless perseverance through the greatest injustice ever committed the death, the crucifixion of Jesus that is what actually brings about the salvation of God's people, the salvation of us. So we might say that we want God to be just, but what we usually mean by that is that we want Him to be just toward everyone else. God can right all the wrongs as long as He's righting wrongs that are done against me rather than by me. We think we shouldn't have to endure injustice because we deserve better. And Peter, at the end of this section, is reminding us that what we get from God is not what we deserve. What we get from God is better. If you're in Christ, you don't get God's justice toward you. You get His grace, His mercy. If you got what you deserved, you'd be in a bad spot. What we deserve is death and judgment because of our sins, because of the injustices that we have committed against our fellow man and against God. And the only reason we don't get what we deserve is because Jesus got what he didn't deserve. The sinless one bore our sin and our shame so that we might receive his righteousness. He persevered through the greatest injustice because by his sacrifice, he could save us from the justice that we had coming. So our healing, our salvation, on its face, it's not just. We've committed sins. And on the surface, it looks like we just got away with it. So now we are the wicked who are apparently prospering. But the reason God can still be just and save us is because by offering Christ as our substitute, He is now both just and the justifier of all who repent and believe. He bore our sins on the tree that we might die to our sins. And He rose from the grave that we might live to His righteousness. Our healing, it appears to be unjust. So now what do we do? We live like people who got away with it. We live like people who have a whole new life. People with a second, third, fourth, billionth chance. We remember his wounds by which we are healed, and now we follow his example. The fact that we've been healed from our sins, that's what allows us to react to injustice in the same way. We know that perseverance through injustice brought us life, so now there's no injustice we can't persevere through. In fact, in in the line of Peter's thinking, it's actually by our perseverance through injustice that someone else might have that same experience that we've had. By our honorable conduct among the Gentiles, they might honor God on the day of visitation. We act this way in light of what he's done for us, Because we remember that we weren't capable of fixing this injustice. We weren't capable of repenting from our sins without him. Look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, we were way off. We had no clue what we were doing. We had wandered way past the bounds of where we were supposed to be. But now that we've heard his gospel, Now that we've responded in faith, we've returned to the one who's in charge, the master and overseer of our souls. And that's Peter's closing argument for why we have to endure these things. He's saying, you're not in charge anymore. We never actually were, but now we know it. Now we're aware of exactly how not in charge we are. When we were in charge of our lives, all we did was commit injustice. All we did was wander astray. But now that we've returned to the shepherd. We submit ultimately to his authority, to his oversight. So when he says to respond in certain ways, we obey, we listen, and we do this as a right response from what he's done for us. Okay, this whole passage, this whole paragraph has been heavily quoting Isaiah 53, but notice the connection in that chapter between our wandering, Christ's sacrifice, and in Peter, our submission to God's authority. Isaiah 53, verse verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So though we were wandering like sheep who had gone astray, he laid our sins on Christ. And now that he has done that and brought us back in, the way we live our lives is to submit to earthly authorities, to honor the emperor, to obey our master's, And we do all that ultimately because he is our master now. And that's what he's asked us to do. Since he who is our master is the just judge, we can respond exactly as Christ did in every circumstance. We can follow his example. We can serve even our unjust earthly masters, just as Christ came to serve. We can endure even unjust punishments, just like the one who endured those punishments for us. We can entrust ourselves to the just judge because Christ will return to right every wrong. And we can live as ones who are unjustly healed because we've been healed by his stripes. So now our whole new lease on life, the whole new life that we get to live, is lived by remembering those stripes through which we are healed. It's remembering that same gospel that saved us. Not that we saved ourselves, not that we now have to earn it, that we have to pay him back, but that he just did it for us. So now we submit to Him as our Master out of love for Him, out of joy in the life that He is calling us to live, and entrusting ourselves to Him who will see us through whatever sufferings, whatever trials we might have to experience, whatever injustices might be committed against us. Because we know that our perseverance through injustice brought us life. So now this is our chance to bring that same life to someone else. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to read your word with your people, to be able to hear these truths, to be able to know your plans. And thank you for not giving us what we deserve. Thank you for, in your scales of justice, looking at we who are guilty and seeing the sacrifice of Christ in our place. Thank you for the chance now to not be caught in our injustice, to not be slaves to this sin, but rather to be slaves to righteousness. Help us to be a people who submit to our earthly masters because in so doing, we know that we're actually submitting to you. help us to persevere through whatever injustices we might encounter as you've told us to and as you've given us an example for how to do so we love you and we thank you in Jesus name amen